Brothers and sisters, hear this good news. Jesus is faithful to forgive. He is full of compassion and kindness, of humility and gentleness and patience. He bears with us. He forgives our sins when we call upon him because he is full of abundant love. We belong to him, and because he has overcome, we will overcome. Because of his faithfulness to forgive, we stand before him this morning, clothed in white linen robes, clean and white. We're clothed in Christ. Believe this and rejoice. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our reading this morning begins in the book of Zephaniah. Not one we turn to frequently. So find the... Uh, unthumbed pages in your Bible. Beginning in verse 1. The word of Yahweh, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares Yahweh. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to Yahweh and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following Yahweh, those who have not sought Yahweh or inquired of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of Yahweh is near. For Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice, he has made his guests holy. And then it will come about on the day of Yahweh's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves in foreign garments. I will punish on, on that day all who leap on the threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. And on that day, declares Yahweh, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish grate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. And it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, Yahweh will do neither good nor evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder, and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but they will not inhabit them. They will plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Near is the great day of Yahweh, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of Yahweh, in, the, in, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against Yahweh, and their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of Yahweh's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. 
Continue with me in Matthew chapter 22. And we'll read again, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fattened livestock, all are butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went their way, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. And the slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. If you would, take the back of your bulletin and we'll read together the end of Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. If you're not sick of me yet, you will be shortly. So we come back to Colossians chapter 3. And in it, we're in the section, and I'll, I'll review here a minute shortly. But we're, we're in the section where Jesus, through Paul, is telling his church what to put on, how to dress, what to clothe themselves in. And, and he gives us a list of things, these kinds of lists that sometimes uh, we want to skip over rather quickly. Well, they're all, they're all the same. Be good, basically. But this, this list, he calls us in obedience to define ourselves this way. This is the attitude, the actions that we're to take up. And in large part, they have to do with 
how we deal with one another. And specifically, the one another that's in front of you. It's, it's easy to, uh, to take these things and, and first apply them to the world around us. And, and there is an application there of where the, the attributes of, of love and bearing and forgiving and, uh, and kindness and humility and mercy, they, they should flow out into how we deal with the world around us. But first and foremost... What God calls us to is how we deal with one, one another. And if you've been around for long, you've had conflict with somebody sitting close by you. The closer they are, the more the conflict. But, uh, you know, in the church, it can be a breeding ground for that kind of trouble. I don't know how many of you have seen... Probably on an individual level, everybody's seen this. When the guards are let down, the restraints are, are put away, and, and people let loose with their tongues. I've seen this happen in, in a church, and it causes the destruction of the church. They watch it let loose, and all of a sudden, that which was, all of the relationships the people of God that were to be a light on the hill are dissolved in a minute because, because the clothing is discarded that God calls us to wear. We worship a majestic God and He calls us out of His grace. He's done marvelous things for us. He's called each of us by name. He's given us, he's given us an identity in him, he's welcomed us into his house, and he calls us to put on clothing that comes from Christ. That's our subject today, and, and lest we think that we're immune, if you stick around in a body of believers, someone will offend you and offend you deeply. It it will come for you. So what then? If we're not wearing these robes, then that trouble will be the end of us. If you would, pray with me. Father, we need your help to hear not just the words on the page but to have our ears bored open so that they enter and drive deep within us. Lord, we, we sit and listen. It's our prayer this morning that both you would speak with power and authority because these are your words and also that you would open our ears through the work of your Spirit to hear. Not the kind of hearing that, that dies away, that gets choked out, but the ears to hear that create a response. So we pray these things trusting in our Savior, trusting in the fact that you have already overwhelmingly demonstrated your love for us and not withholding, withholding your Son, your only Son. And so we trust you this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You remember in Colossians, uh, Paul prays, he prays for them, he gives thanksgiving, he, he gives a, a prayer of praise, and, and we'll see how that colors then this description later on this morning. Uh, 
But the, the beginning of his epistle, so the end of chapter 1 through chapter 2, Paul is reminding us of the truth of what Christ has done. In chapter 3, where we're residing this morning, he's calling us then to a response. So the sequence is Christ has done this, he's given us a new identity, and, and now what? So a number of weeks ago, we started in chapter 3, verse, verse 1, and then the now what is that our minds are lifted up, they're set on heavenly things. So you have this sequence moving from Christ action to a, a, an identification, new clothing for us, in which we who were uncircumcised are circumcised in Christ, we're called by His name, and then that, that results in a renewing of our mind. We're called to set our mind on the above things. And in that setting, there is a transformation. So I'm going to read this, but just as a reminder then, the chapter is broken up in this structure where in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, our minds are lifted up, and then he tells us out of that, out of that minds being set in the heavenly things, we have a call then, a call in which we put off, we put to death every form of ungodliness, the kind of sexual perversions that are common in the world that derive, if you remember, all the way from a, a greedy heart that wants more than what God has given. And Paul reminds us that is idolatry. It issues forth in every perversion of life that you can imagine, every wanting of more and more and more, and it has no end. That appetite that begins with self-worship, with worshiping other than God. And when we don't get it, if you recall in, in, in verse 8, when we don't get that, that more... The other avenue in which sin overwhelms us is in anger. It, it takes its form in anger that wrestles its way into our hearts and forms bitterness, and then it comes out of the tongue in malice. And, and speech that's intent is to tear, to tear God's people down. Our section today in verse 12 is the mirror of that. And, and these are sermons you all have probably heard before, and that you, you put off one set of clothing as he says in, in verse 8, put them aside, put aside all of this clothing, and now we're called to put on, put on a new set of garments. In between, he tells us, in one sense, we've already put off, so look at verse 10, we've already, we've already put aside, sorry, verse 9, the old man. We've taken off the old man, we've put on the new man. So there is both an objective sense in which the old man is done away with. For all of you who stand in faith before Christ, baptized with his name placed upon you, that old man is gone, removed. And yet we're continued to call, put him off. Put off the old man. And at the same time, we've put on a new man. We bear the name Christ. We're one with him. So the end of that section in verse 11, Christ is all and in all. So at one time, if you remember from last week in Galatians, Christ is the seed. And the seed is both singular and collectively singular so that we are one in Christ. And simultaneously, Christ dwells in each one of us. Christ is all and Christ is in all. And this is the basis then for his call to us in verse 12 to put on this new garb. The identity which arrests our minds and brings them up to dwell on the heavenly places where God is, and then work itself out. So I want to read then verses uh, chapter 3, 1 through 17. Let's get them in our minds, and then we're going to deal with the specifics. And, and if, you're, if you're laying them out and you, you want an outline, he gives us eight things, but they're broken up in language. So there's, 
There's five nouns that he tells us to put on. And before that, there's, there's three identifications. So there's three nouns that identify who we are in Christ. Then the five nouns that he tells us to put on. And then there's two participial verbs in how we put them on. And then finally, one overwhelming noun, love. So that's going to serve as our, our outline for today. Now, here are the words that Paul writes to the church at Colossae. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, kill the limbs of your body on earth. Sexual immorality, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's on account of these things that the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside. Anger, fury, malice, blasphemy, and shameful words from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his practices. And you have put on the new man who is being made new in a knowledge that is according to the image of the one who created him in which there is no Greek, there is no Jew, there is no circumcised, there is no uncircumcised, there is no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free, but Christ is all and in all. And so... As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also must you. And on all these, love, which is the maturing, perfect goal, a bond that produces unity. And let the peace of Christ arbitrate in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and be thankful in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, and be thankful through him to God the Father." This is God's command to us today. So beginning then in verse 12, we'll, we'll take up first the description of who, who we are. He uses three words there in verse 12. He says, So as those who have been chosen, holy, and beloved. So three words. Elect, holy, loved. Abundantly loved. This is the foundation upon which the rest of the clothing comes. So in your minds, you can equate this then. He's, he said already, back in chapter 2, that having been buried with him in baptism, you've been raised up with him through faith in the work of God who raised him from the dead. You've put on the new man. You are chosen, holy, 
loved. What do those words mean? They're words that we talk about quite a bit. Of course, chosen, chosen, we know from Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us before the foundation of the world. God, God chose his people. He, he set them out. He elected them. God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he chose. He chose us to be here now, part of his people, in his presence. He chose us to be called into the presence of God. The two second descriptions are, are part of that choosing. So the choosing, the description of what that choosing entails is he's chosen us to be holy. We are holy. And that word holiness means, remember, we brought into the presence of God. We, we dwell in God's domain. Holiness is wherever God is. And so those who enter his presence are holy even if they remain unclean. Uh, remember, there's a problem there if you're unclean and you're holy, but that doesn't preclude you from being holy. Anything brought into the presence of God is made holy. More on that in a minute. So God brings us into his presence, and that's where we sit today. We are holy. We're the holy people of God, chosen right now. Just as the church at Colossae 2,000 years ago was chosen, elected, brought into God's house, and then loved. So we get to the basis, the motivating factor behind God's choosing and acting in holiness. The reason that he brings us into his house, the reason that he chooses us is because of love. And you'll notice that there is an, an intentional Inclusio, though, then in the foundation in which God chose us and made us holy because he loved us. And then the summation of, of Paul's call to the church, which is above all these things, on top of all these other pieces of clothing, the one that binds them together is love. We're called to be like our Father who has chosen us and brought us into his house out of love. And so we respond then to one another, the one another's in whom Christ dwells. And we respond in love. And I, just at the outset, I remind you, as we deal with one another and we see the problems in each other's lives, those particularly aggravating problems and the sins that seem to reappear, and <laughs> I remind you that the foundation here says that God unashamedly dwells in your brother. Christ is all and Christ is in all. So we're welcomed into his house and God himself indwells the one sitting next to you. And so keep that in mind then as we learn to put on these clothes what God calls us to do in responding to one another that Christ indwells that person. Now, this foundation is wonderful, but I, I want to turn to Deuteronomy 7 because there is an inherent warning already in the foundation. So Deuteronomy 7 is the only place in the Old Testament where you have the combination of these three terms coming together. There's allusions to them in that God chooses, God makes holy, God loves, and it's all throughout His Word. But together, they, f they find themselves 
these, these nouns find themselves together then in Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 7, you remember the, the nation of Israel is sitting just outside the promised land. They're being given the law a second time. And here in this giving the law, there's a set of warnings that, that wrap up this book, the second law. And so he says then in Deuteronomy 7, we're going to read from verse 1. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, you shall defeat them. You shall utterly destroy them. No quarter. In fact, they're made holy. God's presence is brought among them, and because of their uncleanness, they are put to death. Same thing, same thing with the, the list that Paul has already given us. There's no quarter given to the sins of sexual immorality, uncleanness, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, because they are idolatry, just as these nations are idolatrous. Verse 3, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their ashram, and burn their graven images with fire. Why? Because you are a holy people. To Yahweh your God... Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out by a mighty hand. He redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that Yahweh your God, he is God. He is a faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his, keep his commandments, but repays those who hate them to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. It lends a little bit of a different flavor to our passage in Colossians. We, like Israel, are chosen, holy, loved. We bear the name of God. And yet there is this call in which God, who is gracious, he keeps his covenant, he keeps his loving kindness to a thousand generations. And yet he repays those who hate him to their faces. This God calls us into his presence to put to death every form, every outworking from the center of the heart to the actions that follow, every outworking, outcropping of idolatry, and to be dressed in new clothes. If you would, turn them back to the book of Colossians. So what I want to do then is we're, we're going to go through th these things that God calls us to with hopefully a little bit of detail. Um, because I, I want you to think about how they, how they relate to one another and how to practice them. And then I want to ask, well, what if this is not us? What then? Because that warning out of Deuteronomy 7 is strong. So what, what then? 
how do we how do we go about putting on this set of clothing? So we begin then again in, in verse 12. Now with this foundation, as those that are chosen, those that are holy, those that are loved, put on a heart of compassion. Many of you probably know that that, that word heart there is not heart, not, not in the Greek. Sometimes when it's translated heart for us, it, it, really, it really is heart. Sometimes when it's translated heart, it's, it's actually talking about the, the bowels. So I think uh, KJV may, may include that. You have, you're called to put on uh, bowels of mercy, or, or maybe what makes a little more sense to us is guts, your guts. And just, just consider for a minute what, what that means. In, in both the Hebrew culture and the Greeks, they referred to the guts as the center then of passion, of feeling. God is calling us to hear a feeling. It's not something we usually talk about. But he's calling us to a feeling. So if you've watched something terrible happen, you notice what happens to your body. It, you feel it way down inside of you. It makes you squeamish. It makes your guts tingle. That's what he's talking about. He says he wants us to have guts of compassion, guts of mercy. I know that this is what the word means. So in Acts chapter 7, we're referring back to Judas, and it says that his guts, the same word, his splachna, spilled out of his body, so that he was disemboweled. Well, God calls us to put on, then, guts of mercy. And at the core here, we're, we're talking about a visceral response to other people. This is, this is talking about how we look at feel about and respond to one another. If you consider that for a minute, that's a hard word. If I just give you a list of actions, you can muscle through it. And you say, well, yeah, I'm going I'm to do it. I'll help the poor. But he says, no, no, what you need to put on is guts of compassion. You have to feel it when you look at your brother and, and, and you see him in trouble in sin, in suffering, I want you to feel compassion. That's an impossible task, isn't it? You say, well, it's either there or it's not there. And yet he tells us, put on, dress these. This is the garb that Christ calls us to wear. Because we're chosen, holy and beloved, because we bear the name of Christ, we put on these guts of passion. And that, that, that word, compassion, it's... It's used of tender mercy. I was thinking about this. In the Greek culture, they didn't display violence on the stage, so they would narrate it. And, and one of the reasons behind that display of violence, that, so they're, they're refusing to display the violence, is because they, they didn't want people to be numb to it. I don't know how many of you are, are, are criers at movies or in books. So you, you have a gut of compassion in that you, you watch something happening and you, you feel it and it comes out as tears in your eyes. I, my kids will tell you, so I might as well just fess up. I'm one of those people. 
there's a danger that we numb that sense to where it's, it's just a response of compassion, but it has no effect. You, you can watch suffering, and you can feel it. Some of you may, may be good at feeling it, but not acting. Others, that you don't, you don't feel it as much. God has us do both. And so we, we put on this gut of compassion, this gut of mercy, and then the second word is a response. And Paul is going to do this a couple times in this list. There's, there's five nouns. And they're, they're grouped in two groupings. And you'll notice the way those groupings are marked off is Paul gives us a compound word that's composed of a body part and, and a response. So we have, and the first one is a gut of compassion, a gut of mercy. And then the second one is the third word in which he calls us to have a, a, a low mind. So, so those, are, those are central to who we are. You could talk about them as interior. In the same way that he went, he went from the exterior of sexual immorality and drove down to the root of, of greed, of wanting more, desiring what God hasn't given, which is idolatry. Now he starts from the interior, and he calls us to put on these clothes. They're a replacement set of clothing. God does not leave us shivering and naked after having put off all of that garbage. In fact, you remember, if, if, if he cleans us, and we put aside all that stuff and, and we don't replace the desire with something better, then seven more demons are going to come to fill its place. You're going to be playing a perpetual game of uh, bop it or I, I always forget what that game is called where you hit the alligators or the moles or whatever they are. And it'll just keep popping up one place after another. And as Christians, we can tend to focus on those sins. And so we bop one and say, I've got it. And then you got another one coming out. Well, of course, the solution is put your mind on the heavenly places, and as we take off the clothing of the world, God calls us to put on something new, something better. He calls us to change our desire so that we want Christ. We, we want what He is, is giving, and what He calls us to in that desire is for one another, to have guts of compassion and mercy. And that spills over into the world so that you ought to have guts of compassion and mercy for, for those outside of these four walls too. But it begins internally because it's much harder to practice, trust me. It's easy to have compassion for those that are far off. It's much harder to have compassion for the guy in your face. So then the second word is the outworking of that gut of mercy in which you feel way down deep. It makes you cry. It makes you in anguish for your brother. You're empathetic. You're sympathetic. But then there's an outworking. And that outworking in the New American Standard is translated as kindness. There's multiple flavors of this word. So some of your, your Bibles might tra translate it uh, as, as gentle, as goodness. In, in Ephesians, the famous verse, we're called to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. There's an even more basic root to this word. Um, and it means usefulness. So in, in the epistle to, the Philemon, to, to Philemon, Paul's writing about the runaway slave Onesimus, and he said he, he was useless, but now he's useful. It, it's, that, it's that same word. So in our, our guts of compassion where we feel for our brothers, he calls us then, there's an outworking of usefulness. Now, there, there, 
they're not wrong to translate this in kindness. What is that usefulness means? It means that, that we see our brother in need and we don't close our heart to them. There's another way this word is translated. We're going to come back to this passage, maybe. should make no promises lest I deceive you. Lots of qualifiers here. Remember Matthew eleven twenty eight. He tells us, uh, Jesus tells us, "Are you weary and heavy laden? Anybody's weary and heavy laden? Come, come to me. Set that burden aside because my yoke is easy." That word "easy" is the same word. There's, there's a sense in which Jesus calls us. And it's not that he gives us no yoke. He gives us commands here. And, and this is important in Paul because he's just told us, don't listen to all, all of those old commandments of men, of the traditions of men. We put those off, but we come to Christ, and now he gives us something that's even harder on the surface of it. But Jesus says, this is kindness. This is my kindness to you to give you this, this yoke. It's light. It's easy because when we take it up, we'll find that we're empowered by God to do just these things. So what's impossible becomes possible. So he tells us then, feel for one another, way down deep in your gut, and then be useful to your brother. So remember First John, John tells us, whoever sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, don't do that. Instead, persuade your heart. That means that the way that we practice this is as we grasp a hold of Jesus and he shows us what it means to be kind. So we, we grow in knowledge and then he gives us this gift of, of, of response to our brother. We see that they, they are sinners in need like us. Then he says, don't squelch that. So when you have a desire to do good, don't squelch it. When you see your brother in need, don't push it away. Instead, be useful to him. Be kind. Okay, the second set. There's, there's now an, an, another, uh, another response that he tells us to put on that arises out of our foundational identity. You are Christ. Christ is in you. And so he says then in verse 12, put on our third word, humility, is a compound word we've already seen in the book of Colossians. It means lowliness of mind. So you have a gut response of your, 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 uh, your reaction to others suffering. And now, the second set has to do with how do you consider yourself? So you respond to others suffering, but yourself, you take your mind, which is elevated in the heavenlies, but it's made low, it's placed underneath others. So you have a, a mind of humility. Now, there is a false kind of humility. It's a false lowliness of mind. He's reminded us of that already back in chapter 2. He told us, don't let anyone defraud you of your prize by delighting in humility. It's the same word. That kind of humility, he says, takes place in the worship of angels. So you, you take yourself and you're humbled by putting yourself under angelic rule, back under the old covenant. That's what he was telling the Colossians, that, that that kind of humility is false because 
you have this foundation in Jesus in which you're circumcised, you're made new. And so you, Colossian Christians, Gentiles, are in his presence. So that kind of hum- humility is false. There is, we have similar kinds of fake humility in which you can, you can run around and say, you know, I'm a worm, I'm the worst, and that's, that's the drumbeat of your life. I'm terrible. That doesn't mean you're humble. Humility is not thinking about yourself all the time. It's not a self-proclamation. Instead, it's a concern for others. And so, of course, Philippians chapter 2, meditate on it. Jesus humbled himself. By becoming a man, he humbled himself even to the point of death for us. All of these things we learn from looking at our Savior what it means to be humble. And there's an outworking then of that humility in which we don't elevate self. God glorifies, God elevates, but we don't elevate self. And so the outworking will help us understand then what this kind of humility means. The next two words, I think, are are then an outworking of this lowliness of mind. My translation then says gentleness and patience. And all these words start running into one another where where there's overlap, and that's on purpose. Paul is, Paul is wallpapering our life. He says, this is what you need to look like. And so the outworking of a, a low mind in which we don't elevate ourselves above others has, has two responses. One is an approach to people. The other is a response. And maybe there's a, a little overlap there. So the word gentle frequently is translated meek. Sometimes it's even translated humble because this is the outworking of humility. This is the action side of what it means to have lowliness of of mind. So what does, what is meekness? That's also one of those words that we have a little bit of trouble uh, grasping. God calls us to be meek. And so sometimes we picture in our mind demure, something like that, some gentleness. And and those things are, are close but maybe not quite, quite right. Because there, there, there is a certain gentleness to meekness. There's a timeliness to meekness. But it is, it is an approach to people. So uh, keep your finger in Colossians and quickly turn back to Numbers chapter 12. Just to remind you, we, we have an example first in Moses. So if you look at Numbers 12, verse 3, the man Moses was very humble, but, but the word there is meek. The man Moses was, was very meek, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. So here we have a first example of meekness, and, and this is the premier example up to this point. We have Moses who's meek, and, and I'm not going to read Numbers 13, but just the, quickly the story here is that, that Miriam and Aaron developed this plan. They say, Moses, he's got this Cushite woman, and who is, who is Moses that God has spoken through him anyways? So they, they developed this charge, somehow related to his wife, who wasn't a Cushite, and, and they proclaim it. And then we have this parentheses by, by somebody. The man Moses was meek 
very meek, more than any man who is on the face of the earth. And then God intervenes. Notice Moses doesn't respond to the charge. God intervenes and he says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, shall make myself known to him in a vision and I'll speak. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful and I speak with him mouth to mouth, even openly. So Moses' response here is meek. He doesn't suffer a response to the folly of Aaron and Miriam. Instead, God intervenes for him. And we see that in, in Jesus. So we're reminded that he's meek and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and yet he didn't open his mouth. So there is a response then to people, an approach in which there's a combination then of gentleness and dealing with people, of silence and allowing God to take up the, uh, some of those battles. Now, meekness doesn't preclude a response but instead, it is, it is the outflow of humility that thinks first of the person you're responding to. We don't have time to walk through all of these passages, but I'll give them to you so you, 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 can, think about, you can think about them. James 121, there is meekness in how we receive the word. So that means we're silent before God when he speaks to us. There's meekness in how we live out the word. So there's a meekness of women, uh, wisdom in James 3.13 in how we argue with one another, the kinds of words that we use. There's a meekness in correcting people in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. And so there, there's a, a response that's required because he's in a, Timothy's in a position of authority and yet he's told to respond to the troublemakers with meekness. And then finally in Galatians 6, verse 1, when that brother, the brother of 2 Timothy 2.25, repents, there's a restoration and there's a way to restore in meekness by thinking then first of that brother that was in sin. And so this will then, this, this attitude of meekness dictates our response. Finally, we have one more word, Patience. The word long-suffering. So it, it, again, as a, a compound word, we endure a long time. We know long-suffering because God has long-suffered with us. Don't you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, of his forbearance, and his patience, his long-suffering with us. So if we have humble minds, the outworking here is both meek, so the attitude of response, and then there is a time frame, a long suffering of that response. We don't deal with people quickly because God has not dealt with us quickly. We're running out of time, so I'm, I'm not going to dwell there. But then we, we come to two participles. Verse 13. So we've had the, the first five nouns and they, they parallel then the five, the two sets of five things that he told us to put off, to put to death in, uh, in verse uh, five and eight. And now he's told us to put on five more things and then there's some verbs attached with them. So he's giving us then further clarification. What does all of this mean? If you have guts of mercy that respond in usefulness and a lowliness of mind that responds to people in, in meekness and patience, what will it mean for the body of Christ? It will mean that you bear with one another. 
So that's one, one word. So you're bearing with one another in all of, all of this. And then secondly, in forgiving each other. Now, the, the basis of, of these things, lest we get confused, the basis of both of them is in verse 13. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. That word complaint means blame, guilt. Blame might be justly placed or unjustly placed. Uh, don't think you're bearing with one another in, in, until there's blame to be cast. Then you have to bear with one another. Then you have to forgive one another. And the difficulty here is how do you decide what, which one you must do? Whether you're holding, holding with one another or forgiving one another. That first word, bearing, uh, we might translate it put up with. The root word is to hold. And so you, you get this picture in your mind. You've got your brother here in whom Christ is unashamedly dwelling and you have a complaint, blame. He says, well, in, in one situation, you, you hold with them so you don't let go. Bearing with people is, is not putting them to the side. That's not what this word means. You're holding on to them. The second case is forgiveness, and, and this will have to be another sermon. Uh, there's, maybe not in this series, but when we get to Luke, we'll for sure dive deeply into this. Forgiveness is at the core of what it means to be a Christian, right? We can't stand before Christ unless he is patient with us, unless he forgives us. And so we have to understand then what it means to forgive one another. The first of these words, bearing with, there is a time and a place then when Peter tells us love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes there's sin, sometimes there's not sin, and yet we're to hold on to one another when there's a complaint. So you know this in your marriages, you know this in your families, that you have complaints. They, they may be sin and they may not be sin, in, in which the response of love does not create a rebuke. So this may be the underwear on the floor. I don't know. You can, you can rebuke your husband if you want to. But if there is a continued lapse of memory, you, you need to hold on to him. Don't divorce him over the underwear on the floor. So that, that's a silly example, right? But that's the kind of idea we get within the body of Christ in which we, we hold on to one another. We put up with one another as Christ has done for us. He's long-suffering, he's patient, he's meek. And if Jesus is meek and patient, how much more ought we to be meek and patient who have received such an abundance of kindness? Now, sometimes there is blame that is sin and the response that is humble and meek, like in 2 Timothy 2, 20, 25, means that you have to go to that brother and rebuke. And, and yet always, then, we're to wear clothes which are quick to forgive. Quick to call our, our brothers back, to hold on to them, to forgive them. And that forgiveness necessarily means setting those sins as far as the east is from the west. Not bringing them up again, not holding them, not creating a tally marker with them so that we've got this ledger book. And you'll, you'll notice when people get upset, when, when the anger comes out, there's always a list that's been held on to. And that, that list is the problem. 
Because if we're bearing with one another and forgiving with one, one another, the list should always only have an end of one. At the most. Because that's the response point. We either choose to put it, put it away and let love cover a multitude of sins, or, as we'll find out someday in Luke 17, we have a re, an obligation, whether we're the offended or the offender, to deal with that. There can be no accumulation of blame within the people of God. I, I wish I had more time to go into that, but verse 14, finally, on all of these things, love. So whether you think of that as the, the, the garment on top or the garment underneath, it's, it, it's irrelevant. This is, this is undergirding, it's overgirding, it's what ties all of these attributes together. Remember at the outset he said you're chosen, you're holy, you're loved, and now love. Put on all of this and love. Bear with one another. And How do you make decisions about what to do when there's trouble? Well, the decision is motivated then by love. What is best for my brother? On all of these things, love. And then he, he gives a description of what this means. Just like he said, covetousness is idolatry. This is a, a definition. If you want more than what God gives, it, it is idolatry. You're worshiping other than God. Well, now, all of these things, love. And this is what love is. Love is a bond. And uh, your translation will, will say this in various ways. It's, it's the perfect bond. It's, it's just two words. And this word bond we've come across already. It's the word for ligaments, so the, the, the joints that take your bone, bone groups and they, they force them together. They hold them in tension. We're held fast in chapter 2, verse 19, to the head from whom the whole body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, bonds, grows with a growth which is from God. He says that bond then is love for one another. God loves us, and so he sent his son and gave him for us. We love one another, and so we hold on to each other. We don't, don't let go. And he says that this bond, the root of the word bond can also be translated chains, imprisonment. So think of Paul in prison, and he's chained to the guy next to him. That's a, that's a bond. It's really hard to break. It's made of, made of steel. Well, th this bond is better. He says that this, this bond is perfect. The Greek word is is telos again so that can be translated mature perfect our goal remember paul said in this epistle that he's striving and he's striving for this purpose to present every man mature all the way to the end and he says this is the end this is the the goal so we're when we choose to love one another it's like we're we're reaching ahead in history to the end for which god made us and you can get that idea out of 1 Corinthians 13 too, right? Faith, hope, love. Which one of these endures all the way through into the eschaton, poking into the heavens when they come down to the earth? It's your love for one another. And so this love both acts as a force to mature one another as we bear with one another, forgive one another, wear the clothes that Christ called us to. And it brings us into that state of maturity. Okay, I'm out of time. What if this isn't us? The scripture reading this morning was from Zephaniah 1. If you were listening closely, you heard a judgment from God on the nation of Judah during the days of Josiah. And his judgment was parallel to what 
God tells us to put off. Remember, Israel was chosen, holy, loved. And yet he, he wrote to them and he said, you're wearing foreign clothes. You come into my house and yet you're not dressed like I, I have my priest dress. You're not dressed in, in linen, white and clean. And God's response to that was he burnt the city down. Turn back to Matthew 22. This was the other reading from this morning. It's the parable of the wedding feast. You all remember this parable in which the king sets a wedding feast and he invites all, he calls those who were invited. So it's, it's like you, you got an invitation in the mail setting the date for the wedding. You got that pre-invitation. I don't know, people still do that. My wife pays attention to them and I don't know until the day it is. <laughs> and then, of course, they make excuses. They don't want to come. So this invitation is looking backwards at, at Israel, but then the king calls out and he says, go, go, go fill up the house. Everybody is, is called invited. The good, the evil, they're, they're called into the wedding hall. Anybody that will come, come. They're all called. That's us. We're, we're called into the wedding feast of the Lamb. And there's a lot to this parable, but I just want to look then at verse 11. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him in the outer darkness. In the place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, but few are chosen. So there's a calling into the house of God. Paul says we're chosen. But Peter also says we have to make our calling and our choosing sure. Be diligent to make your calling and your choosing sure. How do we do that? The commands here for putting on these clothes are not optional. We put on Christ, we have put on Christ, and we continue putting on this new man. They're not optional. And that God calls us and he says, this is what my wedding guests will wear. So what if it's not us? And notice the flavor I've been, I've been giving this in that the, the problem in Colossae was division over the, the law and Christ. Which, which way is right? And there's division then within, within the church. And there can be that division that divides from the head who feeds the body. Cling on to God's people. God calls us to put these on. Now, we don't come this way, right? We, we, we come and he says, such were some of you. You were, you, were, you were full of sexual immorality. You had evil passions, desires. You had greed. Such were you. That's how we come into the people of God. So, I, I don't want to be dejected, but at the same time, we are called forward. We're not called to remain as those people. We, we put on Christ. And so he says, you must keep putting on then this new garb, which is the righteousness of the saints, as we'll find out. But how do you do it? Well, Paul has laid out for us multiple times in Colossians. He says, this is what I'm praying for. We're going to go back to this one more time. 
This is what I'm praying for, that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will. Come and know God. And that in that knowledge, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please Him in every respect, bearing fruit in every good work. The fruit of a tree, and this goes back to Matthew 22, right? There was a fig tree too. It had leaves but no fruit. The fruit of a tree is like the clothing we put on. So we, we grow in this fruit. And it arises out of having our minds set in the heavenly places. We've been identified in Christ, chosen, holy, blessed. Now lift up your mind into the heavens. Think about the above things. Take off the old stuff, put on the new stuff, and then keep doing it. So he says, bear fruit in every good work, and then increase again in the knowledge of God, and you repeat the cycle. You increase in the knowledge of God, you walk more in a manner worthy of Him, and guess what? That which is impossible, in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, this is my prayer, that in this, as you know Him, as you respond to Him, as you grow fruit, even though it may be only a little at first, you'll get more knowledge, and He will strengthen with all of His power. And so we come to Him in a passage like this, in which He gives us something that's impossible to do. And we come by faith and say, Lord, because of your promises, we will obey. He strengthens us. And if you look back to Colossians 1, verse 11, it says he strengthens us with all power, everything sufficient, according to his glorious might. What for? For the attaining of all endurance and patience. The very things on our list so that out of it comes this abundance of praise to God. So this is what God calls us to this morning. Put on guts of mercy. Put on a usefulness to your brother that arises out of that merciful compassion that we learn from Christ. Put on a mind that's humble, that's low, that learns from our Savior what it means to be humble. And out of that, respond to one another in gentleness and meekness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, because this is what God has done for us. It's the very basis of what Jesus did for us, and he calls us to be like him. If you would stand with me and pray. Father, we thank you for your redeeming work. We thank you that you've given us this name of Jesus. We thank you that you've placed us together so that we can look at one another, we can hold each other to your word. And Lord, now we pray that you would strengthen us. Strengthen us to obey. To obey especially when there's trouble, when there's blame, when there's guilt. To be filled with a love for one another because that's what you have done for us. And Lord, we, we know, we recognize that we fall short. But today, having been brought in because of Jesus and reminded that you are the one that forgives us and makes us clean. We can stand here based on nothing we do. Lord, complete this work in us. Bring us to maturity, to perfection, and to the end. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.